back into the book of Romans and uh, look a little further in this book. Sure. So, so for the last couple of weeks, what we've, we've looked at is the fact that before the gospel becomes good news, it starts out as bad news. And the bad news is that without Jesus, no one in humanity is in right relationship with God. That all of us are under the wrath of God but for Jesus coming and laying down his life for us. And so what that means is that now finally, after being stuck in sin for the last several months, we finally get to move on to the good news section of this book. And some of you might know that when it comes to the word salvation, which is now what we're talking about, that the Bible has what you might say are kind of three different senses or tenses of that word salvation. And just as a way to kind of give you like a movie trailer or a preview of what's ahead in this book, the next couple of chapters in Romans are going to take the word salvation, and they're going to break it down for you in those three different senses. So the, what we're going to start looking at tonight in chapters 3 through 5 is one sense of salvation, which the theologians call justification. And that refers to what you might call past tense salvation. And, and justification refers to the way that because of what Jesus has done, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. Then in chapter 6 and 7, and, and in a little bit of 8 as well, it looks at sanctification. And that's like present tense salvation. That's how, like, what Jesus did actually impacts and changes your life right now in the present, and it sets you free from the power of sin. So that when Satan says jump, you don't have to jump anymore because you're no longer under the power of sin. And then, in chapter 8 as well, it's on glorification, which is what you might call future tense salvation. And that refers to when those of us who have loved and known Jesus will be with him forever in heaven and will be set free from even the very presence of sin. So you have three tenses of salvation that are talked about in the Bible. Justification, which is past tense. Sanctification, present tense. Glorification, future tense. And we're starting out in these couple of chapters to look at the first one, which is justification. Which is the question of, like, what is it? What is it that Jesus has done that once and for all changes everything about us? Everything about us. So that's what we're going to look at. And uh, I have a little, a little, I think what we call it, a chart up there. I don't know if you can see that very well, but if you're someone who takes notes, and I hope you are, there, there are those three things kind of broken down for you, past, present, and future. And so <clears throat> we're going to look at the first angle tonight, which is justification. We're going to do that by looking at Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at just six verses. Just six little verses, which might seem like a little, it's a lot. I mean, what we're going to do is, as we go, I'm going to look at three things. The problem of justification, the presentation of justification, the power of justification. Okay, so those are big words, but you can stick with me. Power, presentation, uh, problem, presentation, and power. Uh, let me read this passage, and then let's look at it. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter 3. Okay, Romans chapter 3, 21 and 26. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So let me just look at this first little thing here, uh, <clears throat> the problem of justification. Now, now what we just read, Romans 3, 21-26, this is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. This is the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. And, and that's a little bit of a subjective claim, but I think I could justify that for you. Because Romans 3, 21-26, it's the most complete, it's the most definitive announcement in the whole, whole Bible. That because of Jesus, God has accomplished a way of salvation for the human race. That's what this is about. And if you want a clear statement of that, like sort of a, a one-liner, look at verse 24. So in verse 24, Paul says, The human beings are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of the king by Christ Jesus. Human beings are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of the king by Christ Jesus. And I think there's a slide for that one up on, on the screen. <clears throat> now that verse has two kind of components in it. First of all, what it's saying is that it's saying that human beings are justified freely by his grace. That's statement number one. And that statement is the, it's, it's the fact that we are justified or made right with God. And the second half of that verse tells you on the basis of which that justification is possible. So the first part of it says that you know, gives you the fact of it. The second part gives you the basis of it, which is the part that says through the redemption of came by Christ Jesus. And th those two truths, that we're justified and how we're justified, they're, they're, just, they're so monumental that we're actually going to look at the first one this week and then the next one next week. And you might be thinking, how on earth can you pull so much out of so little? Just, just, just watch. Because what we're going to do for, for, for just like the next probably half hour is that we just really, the, the, the little truth in the first part of this verse, the fact that God justifies us freely by His grace. Now let me show you why that little statement is so blanking. And to start with that, just look, look, at, look at the key word in the passage, which is the word to justify. Now uh, when you think about this word in English, you, know, you don't really use this word very much. You know, a lot of times when you use it, you're thinking about like maybe someone who who like self-justifies themselves, you know, for example. Um, you know, when you think about someone who does that, it probably brings to mind someone who's kind of, you know, snobby, self-righteous, someone who's like so blind and stuck up that like they, they're constantly putting themselves on a pedestal and maybe they're tearing other people down on a pedestal. But the word justify, as it's used in the Bible, all that simply means is to declare righteous. It means to declare righteous. And in fact, in Greek, that's the original language that the New Testament is written in, the words justify and righteousness, they're actually the same word. They're just in two different forms. One of them is the noun form, one of them is the, the verb form. So when you read your Bible in English, you, it's hard to see this, but the, when you see the word justify, you see the word righteousness, those words, they're like the same thing. They're talking about the same concept. And what that really means is that, that when we say that someone is justified or declared righteous, what that's getting at is it's saying that a person who has been justified is declared acceptable. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, for example, applying for a job. You know, so uh, just out of curiosity, really stick up a hand actually. You're in this, this spot. If you're, if you're trying to apply a job, you're applying for jobs, you're applications. Okay, so we got a couple of people. You know, look, we're a group of young adults. You can all 
relate to this. You're applying for a job. Well, let me ask you a question. What is it? How, how do you convince your potential employer that you are justified in getting that job? And, and the way that you convince them that you're justified in getting the job, you show them all the stuff that's on your resume. And if your resume is good enough, then your employer will know that out of all the possible candidates, you are the most justified. You are the most acceptable for the position. Or, you know, think of, here's another example. So let's say you're applying for college. Anyone here who's in that stage trying to decide what school to go to, just sending in their application to that? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sorry for you. Well, so same thing. In order to prove to the college that, that, that you're, you know, acceptable enough to get in, you send in your transcripts. You send in your grades and, you know, your extracurriculars and all that stuff. And what's common about both of these cases is that you know, your dream employer, your dream school, whatever it is, they declare you, you righteous or they declare you acceptable on the basis of your performance record. Your resume is your righteousness. Your report card is like your righteousness. And this is, this is the same thing spiritually. When the Bible speaks about our need to be justified, what it's saying is that the only way for us to be declared acceptable in God's sight is by having an adequate spiritual performance record that says that we're up to snuff. And that's a scary thing. It's a scary thing if you kind of have any sense of, of, of the real nature of your own heart. And, and, and let me just give you, you know, kind of break down for you two reasons why our righteousness doesn't cut it, why we, we need justification from the outside. We need God to be the justifies rather than ourselves. First reason, which is probably obvious from everything that we've read in this book so far, is that no one is righteous on their own. I mean, that's what the whole previous section has been about. It's what the section has said over and over and over again. And it's what Paul repeats in these very verses. I mean, just in case you missed it the first, like, two and a half chapters, he says in uh, verse 23 that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Translation, none of us is right with God on our own. So that's one reason. No one's righteous in God's sight on their own. But the other reason is, is, is that because none of us is right with God on our own, our lives become one huge circus of trying to justify ourselves, and the result is just total and absolute carnage. Some of you have probably seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Anyone seen that? It's a little old, but... Okay, Haley, way to be old, way to be old-fashioned. You know, my mom says I was born an old European man, so I, I love old-fashioned things. Um, Chariots of Fire, it's a movie about a guy named Eric Little. He, he was Christian, and he was also an Olympic athlete, an Olympic runner. And it's, you know, in the movie, Eric Little, he refuses to run in this Olympic race because it happens on Sunday. And uh, there's, a, there's a part in this movie where, where one of Eric Little's rivals, this guy named Harold Abrams, who, who's, who's not a Christian, um, he, he's asked the reason why he competes. And, and Harold Abrams responds, he says, I, I'll raise my eyes, I'll look down the corridor, it's four feet wide, and I only have ten seconds to justify my whole existence. Isn't that interesting? You know, if you've seen the movie, you actually know that uh, when Eric Little is asked that question, how does he respond? He says, well, when I run, I feel this pleasure. Two very different motivations there, isn't it? So, you know, one guy says, when I, when I see 
that track, four feet wide, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Or, you know, listen to this random article I found in the newspaper. This is by some guy named um, Patrick Omori. And, and, and Patrick Omori, he's a guy, he's, he's feeling very existential, he's reflecting on his life. And, and here's what he says. He opens his article, he says, A few years ago, I estimated with a mixture of pride and ruefulness that I had worked every single day, Saturdays and Sundays included, for three months. He told himself, if I'm doing that much work, I must be a great guy, the real deal, a sort of Hercules figure. But then, a little later on in the article, he says he realized something. And he realized that all of this busyness in his life, the busyness had another purpose, namely, justifying my existence on the planet. And that's his word, by the way. He himself uses this word, justify. And what that means is that he is not just working to get things done. He's working to justify himself. To feel okay about himself is another way that you could put that. So, so think about this. Think about how far back this trend goes in human history. Because do you know who the very first person was who tried to justify himself? It was Adam. It was Adam. Adam started this thing. And we've been doing it ever since. I mean, look, the problem is that deep down, all of us fear that we're failures. All of us fear that we're failures. And, and life beats us up. And it makes, it makes us believe that we don't really have what it takes. That we're not good enough, or that we're not you know, beautiful enough. And, and what that leads us to do is to become a bunch of posers. We do what Adam did, which is to cover ourselves with some kind of fig leaf in order to attempt to cover our nakedness. And our deepest fear is that the fig leaf is going to be snatched away, leaving us exposed as the posers that we are. What's your fig leaf? What's your fig leaf? For Harold Abrams, it was running. For Patrick O'Morien, it was working. And those are examples of fig leaves of, of, of people who don't follow Jesus. But Christians have fig leaves too. And in some ways, ours are even worse because we spiritualize everything. So for example, you're a Christian. You say to yourself, well, you know, it's a good thing to serve a church. You know, your small group or, or you know, whatever, wherever it is that you're doing that. And what we tell ourselves is, well, okay, because I've served this much, therefore, I can feel good about myself. Or, you know, we know that it's good to have, like, quiet times in the morning with Jesus, reading the Bible or praying or whatever. So we say, well, you know, because I've had my quiet time every morning, therefore, I'm a better Christian. Or, because I've slacked in my quiet times, therefore, God doesn't like me as much anymore. Not realizing that if the gospel is true, then God can't love you any more or any less than he already does. You know, here's another one. So, you know, we're a group of young adults. We can relate to things like college and work and singleness and marriage. And here's the one question that always goes around a group like this. Uh, that uh, I, I have asked this question myself. You know, the questions of, like, who am I going to marry? When am I going to get married? How long am I going to be stuck being single? Which, by the way, uh, if you were at Thrive Kitsap on March 5th, 2017, I got to give one of my favorite talks I've ever gotten to give about singleness. I love speaking on singleness. Just know you're not a second-class citizen if you're single. And in fact, the Bible says the singleness is in some ways even better than marriage. So I'm not hating on singleness. Singleness and marriage are both wonderful things. 
But the reason I bring this up is that if you're anything like me, I, so I remember long before I had met Amanda or was dating Amanda, um, I remember thinking about my singleness and spiritualizing it. And I thought to myself, well, you know, the Bible says the singleness is better, and so therefore I'm going to not date anyone and I'm going to be single for Jesus. <laughs> I see some hands on Facebook. that I didn't want to date anyone was not because I was this like spiritually high-minded person. It was because I was afraid of commitment. Oh, oh boy. I think, uh, I think I'm not the only person that just called myself out there. Uh, but see, no, the point is, like, look, we Christians will take anything, whether it's, you know, being single for Jesus or, or doing your quiet times in the morning or whatever it is, and it just becomes a fig leaf. It just becomes another way of trying to feel okay about yourself. And Jesus is nowhere in the picture. We are posers just as much as the next guy. And it can come across looking pretty silly looking. And it becomes, you know, sillier, kind of the, the, the you know, I don't know what you call it, the more Christian you get if there's such a thing. I mean, there are people who become missionaries. Why? Because they say to themselves, well, it's the noblest calling. Which you can question that, but some people would argue that. And, and, or, you know, or they say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go become a pastor. Well, why are they a pastor? It, it's, it's not necessarily because they love God or they love people, but it's because it's, it's another attempt to justify yourself or to feel good about yourself. Or you can say to yourself, well, now I'm really serving God in this like, amazing sacrificial way. Therefore, you know, I'm okay. Therefore, God thinks I'm okay. Therefore, I, I can feel good about myself. And then, you know, you become someone who's, like, doing ministry. And then you become hell-bent on, on getting the biggest church or, or baptizing the most people or having the biggest vision or having the best theology. And again, it's not because of God. It's not because of people. But it's because, you know, you're looking to the numbers game to justify yourself. Or, or you're, you're saying, man, you know, if this many hundred of people, hundred people come and, and they hear me preach this week, well, then I must be okay. And in fact, even people who say that they don't need to justify themselves... Are justifying themselves. So, you know, so some of you might be saying, you know, what's this guy talking about? I don't need to justify my existence. <laughs> I don't need anyone, I don't need anything to tell me that I matter. It's enough to know that I'm a human being, that I'm alive on this earth. I don't need anyone. Thank you very much. But let me, let me ask you a question. I mean, isn't that just another way of saying that the reason that I can feel good about myself is because I'm an independent person who's so put together that I don't need anyone or anything to make myself feel good? I mean, that's simply to justify yourself by claiming not to need to justify yourself. Yeah, what, is, what, what is that, a catch-22? But the point is, is that, look, no matter what your fig leaf is, no matter what your self-justification strategy is, don't you see the problem? The problem is that they don't work. And they don't work because one of two things is going to happen. Option number one is that you might somehow convince yourself that actually they do work. That because you're smart enough, or rich enough, or spiritual enough, that you're enough. That you're enough. You can safely feel okay about yourself. And if that's the case, you'll become an insufferably proud person. No one else will ever be good enough for you. And on top of that, you'll be a deceived person. Because the whole truth that, that the Word of God has been proclaiming week on week on week here is that it doesn't matter what your, your intellectual or physical or spiritual or socioeconomic resume says, all of it's trash. I mean, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Which is saying the very, very best that we have to give to God 
It's like just one big pile of the stuff you find in a honey bucket. So, so, so if your self-justification strategy seems to work, you're going to trick yourself. You're going to deceive yourself. You're going to become proud. <laughs> but the other option is that you might know that they don't work. I mean, you know your own heart enough to know that no matter how hard you try, you still don't feel good enough. And in which case, you'll feel crushed. You'll feel, you'll feel a failure. You'll feel ugly. You'll feel worthless. You'll feel like a screw-up. And the only way that you'll, you'll be able to get through is by constantly trying to look to some new identity factor or some other thing that actually will seem to work for you. So he, he, here's the problem of justification. The problem of justification is that to look for this, and everyone needs this. Everyone needs something that they can, can rest their identity in. To look for it in anywhere but Jesus just completely chews you up and spits you out and leaves you a bloody mess on the floor. You can try to feel good about yourself by putting your identity and all kinds of things. I mean, that's what this is really about. To try to justify yourself is to try to, to craft your own identity for yourself. It can be in how popular you are or how sociable you are. It can be in how talented you are, how dedicated to Jesus you are. It can be how different you are from other people. It can be how theologically accurate you are, you know, how good your doctrine is compared to other people. It could be in how accomplished you are, how hardworking you are. But every single one of those things will fail, and it leads to a vicious cycle. And here's, here's a picture of this up on the screen. I don't know if you can see this very well, but just, just follow me here. The very top is just any old self-justification strategy that we use. Anything that's apart from Jesus for our identity and for our sense of security. And eventually that thing will, will show itself for what it really is, which will become a disappointment. It'll lead to disillusionment. You'll find yourself demonizing whatever that thing was. And then you'll be left with nothing but shame and guilt. Anything we look to outside of Jesus ends up in this place. And the question is, does the gospel have anything to say about this? I mean, when I think about this, I think about times in my own life where I've been stuck in, in, in stage number four, where, where you know, my attempts to come across as some amazing Christian have just completely failed and left me in the dust and left me under this dark cloud. Um, where I just know that, that, that I have nothing to offer. And the question is, does the gospel have anything to say to that place that I was in a couple of years ago, or to, or to anyone who's in that place? And, and that takes us to the second point, which is, yes, it does. <laughs> um, and this is, this is what I'm calling the presentation of justification. This is where Paul actually kind of lays it out. And look, look, look back here at our passage. Um, you know, the, the reason that I say that this is the most important paragraph in the whole Bible is that once and for all it says that God has made a way for us to be righteous before him, not through our work, but through his. That God has a way of justifying us. Well, we don't have to do that through our own straining and striving. And in two little words, he tells you this. Um, if you look at the very beginning of this section, what, what are the first two words? First two words are the words, but now. Now, when you use the word but, you, know, you uh, know your English conjunctions here. Are you ever in Schoolhouse Rock? Anyone ever watch Schoolhouse Rock in conjunction, junction? What's your function? Yeah, okay. So some of you, some of you know this. The, the, when you use the word but, what you're saying is you're, you're saying that whatever came before, you're now like reversing, you're contradicting. And up until this point, what has come before? What's come before is that all of us are totally doomed. That all of us, you know, he, Paul has just surveyed this huge, massive survey of human fig leaves and self-justification strategies, and he's concluded that it's impossible for any one of those to make us righteous. 
that no human action can do it, no amount of human law-keeping can do it. But now, he says, a righteousness from God, not from man, but from God, apart from law. In other words, not from man's effort. A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. In other words, for the very first time in human history, there is a way to be made right with God apart from law, apart from human striving. And he says that that righteousness, it comes not from ourselves, but directly from God and Jesus Christ. And, and, and the best way to think about what that looks like is to go back to the whole resume thing. If you think about like your righteousness as your performance record, what's on your, your, your spiritual resume, what justification means is that our resumes, that, that our resume and Jesus' resume have been switched. I mean, imagine all the things that, that you would find if you were to look on our own spiritual resume. I mean, I, it would probably include maybe some of these things. You know, so imagine, Michael Bautersa, date of birth, 3292, here's my phone number, here's my, you know, all the things put in the resume. And then the very first line reads, sinner, failure, screw up, I mean, it might also include things like this. Liar, cheater, coward, idolater. I mean, just fill in the blank. All the things that would be on our resumes. For God to justify us freely by grace means that God takes everything that's on our resume and everything on his resume, and he switches it. And think about what this means. The very first thing that this means is that our records have been completely clean and we've been set free from sin. I mean, earlier this week, I, I memorized part of Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 has these amazing words where it says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. For as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Like, where is east? Where is west? You know, if you were to what, what, what's, what's like east of here? Okay, so uh, wait, we have a guy here from uh, New York City. So imagine that uh, the Irish try to go east and to go all the way to New York. Well, then, you know, there's always more east to go east to. You know, I can go east to New York, east to Europe, east to Asia, whatever it is. You can't ever get to east. You can't ever get to west. I mean, those are not like places on a map where if you went millions and millions and millions of miles, you finally get there. No, the reason that you can never get there is that they aren't places, they're directions. And so, so, so for, for God to say that he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west means that, you know, in the same way that if you went east millions and billions and billions of miles, you'd never find it. If you went west for millions and billions and billions of miles, you'd never find it. It means that if God searched for a million and billion and billion and billion years, he would never, ever, ever find your sin. If God searched for a million, billion, billion years, he would never find your guilt. And the word that we use for this is the word forgiveness. Forgiveness And to have your conscience cleansed is one of the most powerful things in the world. There's a guy named Carl Menninger who was a great American psychiatrist. And he once said that he thought that he could send 75% of his patients home if he could convince them of just four little words. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And what Paul is announcing in this most important paragraph in the whole Bible is that in Jesus Christ, we 
We're given justification. And because we're justified, we're forgiven. And we're forgiven even when God's forgiveness doesn't make any sense. I mean, guys, Satan is real. Satan is real, and his name means accuser. And he will not rest from reminding you of all the countless reasons that you are not worthy of God's forgiveness. And boy, is he good at it. I mean, he'll tell you that Jesus won't forgive you because you slipped up and looked at porn again. Or that Jesus won't forgive you because your girlfriend broke up with you. Or that Jesus won't forgive you because no one will date you or hang out with you or be your friend. But look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. I mean, with one little word, it puts the stopper in the mouth of all of these lies. In verse 24, Paul says that we are justified, that we are forgiven freely. Freely. And that word, that word freely, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he says that people hated him without cause. It's a word that means freely, it means without cause, it means for nothing. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus forgives you without any cause that you provide. Jesus forgives for nothing that you are or nothing that you have. You know, it's not as though God looks inside the hearts of people and says, you know, this person has a little bit more gold in their heart than this person. So this person, I'm going to say as a Christian, I'm going to forgive this person. This person who doesn't have as much you know, good stuff in their heart, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to have be a Christian. It's not how it works. Martin Luther said that the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. There is nothing, you know, Paul says that there is nothing that dwells in me that is good in my own sinful nature. God does not search our hearts in order to find something that's worth forgiving. He forgives us without cause for nothing that we are or that we have done. It's because of who he is, what he has done. That when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again from the dead, God looked at that sacrifice and said, that is enough. That is cause for me to give forgiveness to a world that doesn't deserve it. And it gets even better than that. Because justification is far more than just forgiveness. It's true that we get forgiveness. I mean, it's true because our resumes get switched. But think about this. If, if it really is true that Jesus gets our resume and we get his resume, that, that, that's more than forgiveness. It's not just that God erases our records so that we can sort of just be morally milquetoast. It's Jeremiah's favorite prayer. Milquetoast. It, it's, it's, it's not as though you know, the goal of justification is just to sort of make us not bad. I mean, we could never get into heaven that way. I mean, remember what Jesus says about that. He says that, you know, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most religious people of this day, then, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. If all that Jesus did was offer us like a completely blank slate and nothing more, it wouldn't be enough. But to say that God has justified us means that he hasn't just forgiven us, but he's given us his righteousness. So Jesus, most perfect life this world has ever known. He lived a perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law in his private life. Remember when he was baptized and, and the, the heavens were opened and the Father speaks over Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in him I'm well pleased. What that means is that all of Jesus' hidden years, those years of obscurity, working as a carpenter before people knew who he was, those were years 
where he was pleasing the Father in his private life. He was perfect in his public life. I mean, just think about the transfiguration. Heaven's open. God says the same thing again. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Well, this is like Jesus while he's out in public ministering to all these people. God looks at that and says, perfect. Or, you know, think about the perfection of his whole life. That's what the resurrection was. It was God's amen to Jesus' life, saying that this is a perfect life, this is a perfect death. I'm going to put my seal of approval on this life. And what this means is that God and Jesus has given us that record that Jesus has. Just think of what's now on your resume. I mean, all of these things that are true of Jesus are now under your name. Perfect boldness, perfect gentleness, perfect wisdom, perfect patience, perfect confidence, perfect obedience, perfect courage, perfect purity, perfect generosity, perfect honesty, perfect leadership, perfect love. What that means is that when God the Father sees you, when he reads what's on your resume, that's what he sees. And that's why the Bible describes justification as like clothing. It's like, you know, Paul talks about putting on Christ, like you put on a garment. And, and Jesus, when he gives us his righteousness, it's like being able to put on something to wear so that in him, in his perfect beauty, in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect righteousness, in his perfect love, our nakedness and our shame are completely forever covered up and swallowed up. And if you want just a single verse for all of this, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's like marriage. You know, we're like the bride. We're weak, we're poor. And Jesus is the bridegroom. He is strong and beautiful, righteous and pure. And when two people get married, all that one has, the other has. All that the other has, the, other, the, the one has. When Jesus unites himself to us as our heavenly spouse, he gets all of our debts, and we get all of his name. The gospel means that we're justified in Jesus. We're forgiven, and we've received his righteousness. And just really quick now, I just want to just point out a couple of things that this means. Just a couple of examples of the power of justification. You know, the problem with fig leaves is that fig leaves fall off. <laughs> They're always falling down, and it leaves you feeling exposed and vulnerable. But if it really is true that in Jesus, God has made us right with him, then what that is, is it's a shield. And it's a shield that will protect you from every attack that might be slung at you or that Satan might hurl at you. I mean, have you ever realized that, uh, you know the armor of God? And there are all these different parts of the armor belt of truth, the, the, the helmet of salvation. You ever wondered why the breastplate is called the breastplate of righteousness? I mean, that's our key word we're talking about, righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. The reason is that when you've been declared righteous in God's sight, it's armor that covers your heart. I mean, the most profound, deep-set fear in the human heart is that, like, deep down we're not acceptable, we're not lovable, and that we'll never be right with God. And it's, and it's true that of ourselves we're not. And it's why we cover up with so many fig leaves. But if you really have allowed to kind of sink deep, deep, deep down into your heart that in Jesus, God has accepted us. In Jesus, we've been forgiven. And that's like a breastplate of righteousness that will cover your heart and protect it from anything that the enemy would sling at.
I mean, I, I think about, you know, that movie, Lord of the Rings. You know that part at the very end of the movie where Boromir is saving two other hobbits? And, and he just gets, like, hit over and over and over again with arrows that just wound him right in his chest. I think a lot of us are walking around with a bunch of arrows sticking out of our heart. Those are things that, that, that the enemy has slung there and they've stuck there. And maybe what God wants to say just through this whole thing, this whole message, is that there is power to have the arrows removed. You don't have to go around walking with all these wounds stuck in your heart. But God wants to give you a breastplate of righteousness that will protect you from all of those lies. So it means that the reason why justification is so powerful is that at last, maybe for the very first time in your life, you can come out of hiding. You don't have to constantly be hiding behind fig leaves and putting on a mask and pretending to be someone that, that, that you're not. That, that because of what Jesus has done for us, because he's justified us, he's given us a new identity. We can be honest with God and with others. And instead of trying to hide from a God who seems angry at you, you can enjoy the love of a God who delights in you. It's just so cool <laughs> what we have in Jesus. And this is just the beginning of all that we're going to see about all of the good news of the gospel news. Um, as we move into small groups, um, there are a couple of questions that uh, I'd like you guys to ponder tonight. And these first two questions... Um, these are things that I hope you discuss tonight. I also hope that you kind of take these away um, and really ponder them individually. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I would encourage you to just kind of jot these down. Um, this first question, I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in small groups. I'm going to ask you to talk about it again tonight. Maybe just go a little deeper um, or, or maybe just maybe think about it in light of what we looked at. Um, first question is, what are your fig leaves? What are your fig leaves? And the same thing is, what's God saying about these fig leaves? Now that might be something that takes a long time to kind of process and digest, but I would just encourage you, um, you know, sometime, soon, just like maybe get alone with him um, and, and, and talk to him about those things. What are your fig leaves? Uh, what is God saying to you about those fig leaves? And then there's one other question on there, I can't remember what it is, but uh, small leaders, you know what to do. So uh, that's that, and I'll invite Amanda up to dismiss this to groups.